Welcome to the Mind and Soul podcast for July 2009. This month we're going to be bringing you a selection of talks from our recent conference in Bradford and we're starting off with Christine Chapman talking about her passion for seeing older people treated with dignity and their mental health taken seriously. Presence in the community is really needed. It's needed to redress what's happening in society. And word and worship is a way that we not only get to see the older people enjoying worship. You know, it's great. It's wonderful. I'll give you an an example of what it's like. One of the first homes that we went into was a home around this area. And as we walked in, it was quite an oppressive situation very dark. I'm not sure how many of you have ever been in a residential home, worked in one. Some of what I may say now may shock you, but it needs to be said. You need to be shocked. And um, these people were sat in a very dark, smelly environment. The heads were down. They weren't sat up like you are. They weren't able to engage with each other. They were not guided into the room they were pulled into the room where we were about to have a service and it was just a mixture of of oppression it was really hard and for me I was struggling I was really struggling with how can I bring a word and worship to this group of people how are they going to understand what benefit and I was really battling you know um but we had a young band And the young band set up the drums and the guitars. And the older people were like beginning to lift up their heads. You know, in Isaiah, lift up your heads and look all around. And and just the hustle and bustle of them setting up actually created a stir with these older people that they were awakening. They were were thinking, what's going on? And then to be hit with really loud music was like, they could do nothing but focus. But, you know, it was wonderful to see a group of older people go from not being able to even look at each other, you know, to, to be looking at the floor and dribbling and not be aware of the surroundings, to be up and clapping and dancing in the seats. And whilst that was happening, I just knew that the word God had given me, I needed to be able to express. And that day in that home, eight older people chose to give their life to Jesus. If I'd not done that, if I'd been afraid of what people might say, if I'd been so egotistic to believe that it was my words that they needed to hear anyway and they, were, they weren't going to be useful, then I was, I was doing the wrong thing. And that taught me a very great lesson that day. That taught me, number one, that I knew it wasn't about me, but it really confirmed it's nothing about me. I'm a vessel. I'm a vessel that's God, that God's used to pour into in order for me to be able to express. I'm a passionate vessel. I'm not the normal type of person that you perhaps see um, visiting an older person in hospital, you know. I, I'm very much a passionate person. And, and with the integration with older people, um, we try and make it lively and, and, and relevant not old and stayed because that's not what that's not that's not what's needed next we hear from will van der hart as he interviews jonathan clark and mike bush 
in, interview my auspicious friends from the comfort of this sofa. I've never done this before. They don't do this in the Anglican church. You have to stand up by uncomfortable wooden seating. This is very nice. Um, I want to say a massive warm welcome. Mike, brilliant to have you here. Thank, Thank you, you so much. Jonathan, lovely to have you here. It's, I'm um, back again. Great. I'm going to interview you both. Now, you have to be really kind to each other and not jump in. No. Okay, we'll see how this works. This is going to be interesting. They're both big lads there on that sofa, and uh, I'm feeling a bit intimidated. Um, one of the things we've thought about uh, at, at Minus Soul is the importance of personal story, and I think one of the things that we're all really appreciating about being here is not hearing uh, necessarily speaking from the front, it's actually looking around you and thinking, wow, all these people are joined together doing this amazing God stuff. And that's so encouraging, particularly because we all often work in isolation. So we thought what would be really nice um, is, to, is to do this interview and uh, just to kind of just to give thanks for, for Mike Bush for his testimony, Jonathan Clark and his testimony and what these guys are doing. So I'm going to ask them both a bit of questions. I'm going to alternate between the two of you, give you time to think. Starting off with um, Mike, just tell us a bit, you, you, a bit about your family background, just what happened to you as a 15-year-old and then subsequently as an 18-year-old. All right. My, my mother died when I was 15 of cancer, um, which was horrendous because um, both my sister and my father nursed her. And apart from some intervention from the GP, that was all there was. Um, and sadly, three years later, my father took his life. Um, a combination of things. Uh, he made a second marriage, which was a disaster, and uh, he got made redundant at work. Um, and within two days of that happening, he took his life. Now, following on from that, my sister became depressed, and I went with her to see a psychiatrist. I'm sorry to say, but that, that particular psychiatrist was not at all helpful. Um, there was no kind of hardly any recognition to us as people. I don't think he even bothered to look up at us, really. Um, and it was, take these tablets and go away. And I thought, oh, if this is psychiatry, I don't think much to this. Um, and all, she, all that happened was she developed a whole collection of very bad reactions to the medication. And I, th I thought at the time, and I knew nothing about mental health, but I thought what she needs is some kind of counselling, some kind of group she can go to. Uh, okay, great. I mean, so you're, you're, you're a, you've experienced you know, bereavement and suicide in the immediate family. Jonathan, you've also experienced mental health issues in your wider family, haven't you? Tell us a bit about that. Yes, um, I guess my so first experience about mental health issues was when my grandmother um, had a, uh, a breakdown when she was probably in her 50s or so after a bereavement. And she was then diagnosed as having manic depression. Uh, a lot of people now know it's bipolar disorder. And so I have these vivid memories of when I was young her going through these sort of this mixture of manic phases where she was as high as a kite, um, doing the most bizarre things, sort of like leaping off uh, a bus when it was at a, at a bus stop to go and do something, rushing around, and the bus driver thinking, what's happening with this woman when she's actually meant to be on the bus for him to go? And she was doing all sorts of strange things like that. But I also remember her in her depressive phase where... She was the complete opposite and withdrawn and, and all the rest. And so for me, as a, a young child, that was really quite an experience. Uh, but in addition to that, we, I grew up in a home where, in many ways, my parents seemed to be very much 
encouraging of people with problems, I guess some people describe them as the wastes and strays of life. And so I actually, I remember Christmases where we had some quite strange characters coming to the house. And it was only later I realized that my father had actually had a breakdown when he was young, uh, like when he was sort of 15 or 16 or something. And after that, had decided that he would actually open up his home to people who were in need, whoever they were, whatever they were going through in their lives. And so actually I grew up very much with that sort of surrounding. And so for me, almost that seemed natural to actually take that the next step. And interestingly enough, both myself and my brother went into work in mental health. It's really interesting how the impact of your family, both of your family experiences of, of mental illness and of bereavement and suicide has, has actually triggered an interest in some ways. You, you know, the style of your work is both very similar in terms of counselling. And Jonathan, you've, you obviously, you know, you, you, you've, you've done a number of different things from social work to being a minister. And Mike, you've been doing tons of counselling and you're supporting particularly su- survivors of suicide. Absolutely, yeah. so, Tell us a bit about how you made the transition between being a, a, a victim, a child of someone who died of, uh, through suicide, to, to being someone who's involved in, in, in the care of others. How, how did that transition happen for you? Well, I think I got interested in social work through my mother, actually. She was a very caring person. She was always helping people, and she encouraged me to help people. So I think I, I took the lead from her. The interest in mental health obviously came about from my father's death. Um, and some years later, when I qualified as a social worker, um, actually a mental health chaplain in Leeds, um, Reverend Robin Walford, who was also a psychotherapist, had the idea of setting up a group for people bereaved through suicide. And I was involved with that group for 15 years, um, where we would uh, meet twice a month. We'd also see people individually and provide counselling and support. It was very important to people in the group that they knew that we had ourselves been bereaved through suicide. Uh, so I guess we were forerunners, um, this in the early 90s, of user involvement before it became sort of popular as an issue. Um, and it was out of that experience of working with people in that group, um, there was a consultation period that came up for the National Suicide Prevention Strategy, and I wrote in a paper highlighting the needs of people briefly suicide. And that led me to a meeting with a senior civil servant of the Department of Health, which, following on from that, we, uh, I was invited onto a working party um, to develop help is at hand. Something I wanted to say to people. If you know of anybody who's been bereaved through suicide, this is a first national resource called Help is at Hand. You can get it from the Department of Health website. Um, and it, it, it only came out two years ago. It's the first ever national guidance on suicide, bereavement and sudden traumatic death. And um, just an important resource to be aware of. Mike, I'm, I'm going to be cheeking talk a bit about my seminar earlier on. In terms of, obviously, some of the documents you've been formulating as part of the, the National uh, Suicide Prevention Strategy Working Group, mm. policies are important because, guidelines are important because, in your experience, how, how they, have they impacted you know, the wider community? You know, a lot of your practice mm. has now been digested and turned into guidance and policy making mm. for other people. How has that worked? Well, it, it's, it's, it's highlighting the need. I mean, we, 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 having been through um, the experience of suicide bereavement myself, and um, nine years ago I had a very severe mental breakdown myself, I know what it's like to be on the receiving end, not just a, 
And I can't put into words, um, I travelled light years in my mind in understanding what real acute mental distress is right. And I'm not decrying academic learning, it's very important, but no amount of academic learning can teach you personal experience of having been there yourself and the insights and understandings that you gain thereof. Yeah. Uh, that's why I'm sold out on the importance of user involvement in education and developing services. Brilliant, thank you. That, that, Jonathan, for you, there's also, you know, you, you've been journeying with some of your family experiences in putting mental, emotional health in the public arena, both as a minister for seven years and six years consecutively, and then as a social worker, and then at Premier. How, how, how did your experience sort of translate into the public arena as it has done? I, th I think I got into the mental health world itself through, uh, I guess, at school. I, I tended to attract people who, who needed someone to talk to. And so I actually got into befriending people and sort of that led me to look at issues around counselling, issues around how to, how to help people. Um, my first actual job was actually as uh, in charge of a uh, Christian community which was set up to look after people with mental health problems. And that really was in a sense being thrown into the deep end uh, because we actually, in that, in that particular place, took, um, in a sense, quite the sharp end of the work. People who had been suicidal, who were self-harming, who were suffering from personality disorders, often people that no one else uh, were able to accommodate. And this place had a, sort of got a reputation for taking um, the sort of the, the mental health clients who needed somewhere, but very few other places would be willing to consider them. And so actually my introduction to mental health work was actually um, a very interesting one in that I was thrown in literally into the deep end. And from there, I spent three years um, trying to grapple with um, the, the Christian response as well as the sort of mental health um, response. And so I then trained to be a social worker and was approved under the Mental Health Act, uh, and then specialised in deliberate self-harm. So actually Interesting. quite an interest sure. in suicide and self-harm. Absolutely, and, and that's where there's also parity between your two experiences. That Jonathan, you major in self-harm and suicide. Mike, you minister into, uh, into bereavement and suicide. Mike, f f both of you in a way have been affected by close contact with mental health issues and personal experience of them. Um, you, you've, you've kind of experienced some, you've said yourself, and your testimony is very powerful. How, how do you think you've changed as a, as a minister and as a practitioner and as a social worker from the experience in terms of how you were before you, mm. you had your experience of extended depression mm. to how you work now? And, and, and have you got any tips for anyone here about how, how to manage boundaries or how to stay kind of in the present mm. as, as you work in this demanding, in this demanding area? I think what you said this morning was so important, um, compassion and understanding. Um, but it, it is important to have boundaries. I'm not terribly always good at that myself, I have to admit. Um, but it is really important, and you, you underlined that this morning, I thought, very well. So, yeah, you do have to look after yourself. Um, very, very important. Otherwise, you're not going to be around to help anybody else. Obvious point. Sure. Yeah. Jonathan, you, you obviously have a lot of connection now with people who, whereas Mike's kind of seeing a lot of people face-to-face, -face, 
you have a lot of people ringing you up, which is you know, an interesting experience in itself, because in a way, many of us would say it's easier to kind of get a sense of where people are at when you can see their face and you can talk to them and you can kind of encourage them on a one-to-one. But you, you, you have hundreds of people now phone the organisation Premier Lifeline. How, how does that work? Tell us about that ministry. Yeah. Um, the thing is, for me, I, I actually had a parallel career. I was working in the church and at the same time working in mental health work. And so when um, I heard an advert saying uh, that Premier Christian Radio was looking for someone to become the manager of Premier Lifeline, its confidential helpline, um, I was actually able to bring the two strands. It was almost as if God had actually sent me into two completely different areas with one foot in Christian work, uh, being minister of the church, and one foot in the mental health professional side of things, and having to actually think, how do I bring the two together, how do I interact the two, and particularly with my interest in suicide and self-harm, um, to actually then move into what I guess is easiest to s- describe as being a Christian equivalent of the Samaritans, in that Premier Lifeline is a listening ear, someone to talk to, uh, it offers emotional and spiritual support from a Christian's per- Christian perspective where if someone's in need and they want to phone up and actually have the Christian spiritual side included in the discussion, my team can actually do that. Whereas if you were phoning Samaritans, the Samaritans come from a, a, a perspective where the, the actual volunteer cannot bring their Christian perspective. Our volunteers can. And so for us, we're open 15 hours a day, 9 o'clock to midnight every day of the year, we take something like 60,000 calls a year. Mm -hmm. And it really is quite a challenge, because actually when people start thinking 60,000 calls to a helpline like that, um, and predominantly they're from Christians. Do Christians really need help? Do they really need someone to talk to? Are there people out there who are lonely, distressed, perhaps suicidal, uh, depressed, maybe self-harming? Yeah. Are there really Christians out there? And actually, yes, there are. And they actually need someone to talk to. And that's why Lifeline exists. As someone at the end of the phone, absolutely confidential, you can be completely anonymous. And from my perspective, it's almost as if God had brought me through the different strands of what I'd done. And in fact, I'd also at one point been involved in doing some bits on radio as well. So actually, it was like this whole thing had been brought together and it's like a preparation for the particular work we're doing at the moment within, within Premier Lifeline. That's really encouraging. I mean, it's amazing. It's, isn't it incredible? 60,000 people phoning that oh, lifeline. Amazing. I think that's unbelievable. Yeah. I mean, it, it's, it's ironic to me that, we're, that, that Premier call their thing Lifeline and offer Christian opportunity and Samaritans are called Samaritans and don't. <laughs> you think that Ooh. the story of a good Samaritan would be quite a good one to Ooh. have related to, to the faith. But um, I, I know the foundation is a spiritual one. Mike, you, you've got this incredible testimony whereby you really became a Christian mm. in the depths of your experience of depression. Mm. Um, and th- there's this nice sense here that there's a connection for people who are depressed or anxious and there's a Christian, potentially a Christian response. Just, just tell the people here a bit about how um, you transitioned or, or at, at the depths of your depression, how you made a connection with God. Right. Well, my, my best friend uh, was a vicar. This is many years ago in, in Wigan. Um, at that time, I was a, an ardent practicing atheist. I had no time for Christianity religion whatsoever. Um, but he happened to be my best friend, uh, and he was a vicar. I knew him from a 
fellow social worker who was, happened to be married to him. And we had a lot in common because he was the chair of the Labour Party in Wigan when Labour was a proper Labour Party. <laughs> and not a watered-down version of the Conservatives. Um, so we had a lot in common. To, we worked very much thought along the same lines. And he was just a great guy. He was so many different things to me. And nobody in life has made me laugh more than Joe. Um, I still miss him terribly to this day. It's just everything to me, really. Um, so... Years later, suddenly my, my friend died over 12 years ago now. Years later, I'm in the middle of a mental breakdown, and one day, I had many desperate days, one particularly desperate day when the plan was to put my head on the railway line. Um, I was walking past my, my church where I live. Um, it wasn't my church then, it was just a church. But something was saying very powerfully, go and see the vicar. And my friend had a saying, um, my friend Joe had a saying, come in and join us, the water's warm. And he had a, a smile that would light a room up. And I'll always remember him saying that to me one day. And I thought at the time, I thought, that's a really nice thing to say, but I can't see this Christianity thing. But it was there in my mind. And in, this, in my des most desperate hours, that phrase was going round and round in my mind, come in, the water's warm. And something very powerfully was saying to me, go and see the vicar. And I thought at the time, my exact thought process was, Oh my God, I must be really desperate. I'm turning to the church. <laughs> I'm an atheist, you know. I don't believe in this stuff. And I thought, well, it was saying so powerfully. We go in, see the vicar. And thank God, he was in. The vicar was there. And he was really good with me. Because he, he was very practical. He actually checked out that I was registered with my GP. And I was, get, I was getting help from mental health services. And then he started talking to me about the love of Jesus and suffering in the cross. And um, he told me about something called the Alpha Course, which I thought, well, I'm, I'm going to give this a go. I thought, I'm desperate. I've got nowhere else to turn. I'm going to give this a go. So I went along to the Alpha Course. And although intellectually, um, I couldn't take anything in because you can't when you're in a state of acute depression. I mean, whether you want to turn left or turn right are just two big decisions to make. Um, but what I did pick up was the unmistakable love of people around me, particularly um, a lady in our church called Ali, a wonderful lady, who herself had suffered from depression some years before. And I don't know, but she was able to give me the hope of hope that things might one day improve. And I think through her, for the very first time, I encountered what I would call the conscious love of God. It was... It wasn't just what she said, but how she said it, how it was transmitted to me. And um, that was like a kind of turning point for me. And um, that was how I kind of began my, my Christian journey, really. Right, it's so encouraging, isn't it, for everyone to hear that, you know, the effect of just the love of the people of the church mm. and the love mm. of Christ permeated through in quite implicit ways as well mm. as explicitly could that I, that had such an effect. Could I just also add one of the things that I found incredibly supportive was the fact that people in our church they would ask me first but they'd say can we can we pray for you and they'd put their hands around me and they'd pray for me and they'd hug me and I found that a really important spiritual validation of my personhood I wasn't getting that from mental health services because of protocols rules and regulations which I know are there for a good reason but that was very important it was something very fundamental on a spiritual level, the praying, the holding, the hugging, 
that mental health services, I know sure. for a reason why um, um, many, in many instances people can't do that. Um, and that, that was a very fundamental thing that was important to me. Great, thank yeah. you. That's really helpful. Um, I, you know, especially having talked earlier about policy and, uh, and, and protection. I know. I know. And it's a good challenge. I mean, I, I do think one uh, of the things I really enjoy about the, about the peace in church, I'm not sure if everyone yeah. does that, but in the Anglican Church we do the peace. Yeah. And there's a chance everywhere for everyone to sort of shake hands or yeah. if you're feeling very bold, hug. And, uh, and, and, and that does seem to break down incredible boundaries, just like we heard earlier with, this, mm-hmm. with the story uh, that the bishop told us about the boy learning disability, with, with the l- learning um, disability who, who, who went around and did the piece and actually broke down the whole atmosphere of the church. Mm-hmm. That's, that's great. Jonathan, I was going to ask you, oh, I was going to ask you both, as a church leader, I want you to, to you know, what, what advice would you give me to make my church more mental health friendly? If you want to challenge me, I mean, obviously, you might think I know what to do, but... Imagine I, I didn't know anything. I don't know anything. Give me some advice. What, what would you say? Looking forward for the church, what, what's your hope for the church in terms of mental and emotional health? Certainly from my perspective, when I was uh, a church leader um, in one of the churches where, where I was the minister, um, we actually had a residential home within our particular area uh, where they specialised in taking people with mental health problems. And I guess not that many church ministers will necessarily have that, but we certainly did. And some people would actually take the service to them and actually then take services actually within, that, within the residential home. But we actually encouraged them to come to us. Now, that was fine until some of the church members uh, realised that some of the people from the residential home were maybe not quite the sort of people they were expecting to be in church with. Um, These were people who had been long-stay patients in psychiatric units. So they were suffering from all sorts of side effects of the long-term medication that they're on. They were quite fidgety. Uh, They were fairly heavily dependent on smoking. Um, They would be potentially uh, hearing voices, all sorts of different things. And it was quite a rude awakening for some of my church members to actually have us encouraging a group of them. And at times we might have eight or more within what was a fairly small church um, coming in. And there was all sorts of challenges. Um, you know, you do not necessarily expect people to get up halfway through the service to go out for their cigarette break. You do not... Um, when I was actually speaking, I'd actually have to take into account that if you asked a rhetorical question, you would get an answer. Oh, this was a uh, and, and, and so, you, but, but realistically, you also had to rethink exactly what you were saying and whether or not it would be understood by the whole of the people there. And yeah. it's actually quite good to be challenged as to mm. what yeah. you're saying, why you're saying it, is it going to be understood? Is it mm. practical? And all of those things. Mm. But on top of that, it's the question of, are you welcoming people? Mm. Are you actually saying, yes, we want you here. We want to get to know you. It's actually you that matters. Yeah. And one of the key things, I think, is that um, you, you don't look at the person with the diagnosis and say, this is a schizophrenic, this is a depressive this is a self-harmer, this is a, an mm. addict. You actually 
need to look at them and say, this is a person that God loves and is just as special yeah. to Hallelujah. God and has yeah. just as much right yeah. to be in this church yeah. today yeah. as anyone else. Yeah, that's right. And that's the starting point. Mm. I'll, I'll take the challenge, Jonathan. I'll take the challenge. It's a good one. Mike, what, what about for you? I mean, where, where do you well, see that? Where, where do you see we, us going with mind and soul and, and, and affecting the church? What do you want to see? I fully endorse what Jonathan's just said, by the way, completely. Uh, yeah. I think, yeah, I think um, a very important thing is what we do with mind, the Mind and Soul Sundays. I think that's a very central thing to what we're about. And I think that's something we need to uh, give a lot more attention to and focus to doing as many of those as possible, because I think you've got to reach people where they are, not where we are, yeah? And I think um, you've, you've got to get these, these, the, the message across about stigma, about discrimination, the myths the misconceptions, all of which is born out of fear and ignorance, you know? That's the cornerstone. So it's a big education job. We've got that as much to do in churches as we've got anywhere else in society. And also we've got to tackle what I would call bad theology, like the concept that Christians don't get depressed, and one, one of our members wrote a brilliant, brilliant article. She's here today on that very subject called Christians Don't Get Depressed, Do They? And I'm afraid it, it was a very negative, bad experience she had of church where she got condemnation rather than love and support. Exactly the opposite to what Christ is about. And um, it's on the website. I strongly advise everybody to see it. It's a message to us all. Thank you. Wow, that's a real challenge too. I mean, it's just brilliant to see you both here on, on the sofa representing, you know, so many people, so, so, so much dynamic ministry. I, um, I'm just, I'm moved by it. I just think it's incredible. And I'm, it's just a privilege to be learning from you guys too and the sort of the next generation of, of leaders coming through. Thank you for listening. The audio from the other talks can be downloaded from our website, www.mindandsoul.info forward slash conference.